welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. This morning, I want to share with you, before we get into actually our text for the morning, I want to share with you about a book that I read several years ago that I was reminded of this week because of our topic. Uh, The book is uh, by Desmond Tutu, and the the actual, the title is called No Future Without Forgiveness. Um, Interestingly, uh, I read this several years ago. I actually couldn't find my copy of it. I, I searched the office. I searched uh, the home. I searched all of my little stacks of books. I, don't, I couldn't find it. If you borrowed it <laughs> and you didn't give it back, give me back my book. Actually, I had to order another one, but it didn't come in time. So what I had to do is I just, uh, Lindsay did some research for me and I did some deep dives on um, just trying to refresh myself on the content of this book because I was so impacted by the story that this book carries. So it's a story about actually about racial reconciliation, racial injustice and racial reconciliation in the nation of South Africa. And so I just, I, I just took some notes because it's, it's a little bit complex and it's deeply rooted and yet the solution is, is actually uncharted territory from a human perspective. And so I just want to share that a little bit with you. And um, I just took some notes here, so I'm going to kind of go through this. Um, but the context for this book, so it's, again, the book is No Future Without Forgiveness. The context is the ending of apartheid in South Africa. That may be a term that you're familiar with, but you know, sometimes there's these terms that we've heard and we sort of know what they're about, but we don't really know. So um, I just kind of did a deep dive, and I'll share that with you. So apartheid, first of all, that's a word that means apartness, apartness in the South African language of Afrikaans. Um, It's a name that was actually given to a long-existing policy of segregation in the nation of South Africa, segregating uh, especially the white South Africans from anybody that was not white. Okay, so when the Afrikaner National Party came to power in 1948, Okay, so this, this pre-existed 1948, but really got solidified in 1948. They came to power. They began strictly enforcing the existing policies of segregation. They began severely limiting contact and even the sharing of public spaces between the two groups, even forcing them to live in separate areas. By 1950, they had passed legislation to ban marriage. Okay, they legally banned marriage between whites and people of color. They also criminalized sexual relations between black and white South Africans. They further separated the population uh, by classifying. This was a, a legal designation. They legally classified every citizen as one of four races. Either you were black, you were colored, which means mixed, you were white, or you were Asian. Okay? Asian including like Indian, Pakistani population. So this legislation, it even separated families if parents were classified differently. So if, if parents had come together from, one, from different of those four races and had children, then the children were even separated from one or both of their parents. Additionally, there was a series of land acts. These were policies that were passed by this government. They were called the land acts, and they deepened the apartness. Some 80% of the land was designated to the white minority population, 
And non-whites were required as part of the Land Act. They were required to carry passbooks. Think, think like a passport. It was a passbook that was basically it was a document granting them to authorization if they traveled outside of their appointed areas into ones restricted for them. So you had 80% of the population, or 80% of the of the um, the land was made was restricted for white people, and then the majority of the population was restricted to 20% of the of the land, and then had to carry papers if they traveled outside of that. Eventually, these land acts included the forced removal of black South Africans from their land and homes, while their land was sold at low prices to white farmers. Those removed were resettled in places with limited economic opportunity and were therefore plunged into poverty. That's big picture what happened beginning in 1948 with the solidification of those policies. What happened over the next four decades was a deepening divide of the South African people by a government-established and enforced policy of racial apartheid, of racial apartness. Initial attempts at peaceful resistance to these policies proved futile and resulted in violent pushback. So, for example, in 1960, there was a group of non-white South Africans who marched on a police station in Sharpeville without having the passes or the documents that allowed them to be there in a restricted area. They expected to be arrested for this act of resistance, but when police opened fire with live ammunition, 67 blacks were killed and more than 180 wounded. Convinced that peaceful resistance was futile, groups opposed to apartheid began forming military resistance, which was then in turn met by government backlash aimed at maintaining apartheid and crushing resistance. Government actions included the imprisonment and or execution of resistance group leaders, of torture, and the ongoing use of live ammunition on protesters, both adults and children. This resulted in maiming and death of the population. It was in this environment that Nelson Mandela, a founder of the military wing of the ANC, was incarcerated from 1963 to 1990 for 27 years because of his leading resistance against this apartheid policy. Meanwhile, the festering hatred, superiority, poverty, oppression, resentment, and the hunger for justice and retribution resulted in countless acts of violence. This, is for, this went on for 40 years. Countless acts of violence and aggression from both sides. So you had one side fighting against the other, one side, one side lashing back, the other side lashing back. This just went on for, for decades. Nelson, uh, eventually under mounting global pressure to end apartheid, the South African government of the early 90s began to dismantle the legal framework and the policies of apartheid. They began instituting some corrective reforms, including free all-race elections. Up until now, elections had been very controlled, and they at last had free all-race elections. It was in this environment that Nelson Mandela, Mandela was eventually freed and eventually elected as the country's first black president in the first free all-race national election in 1994. And here's, here's the point of all this. So, so here's this deep-seated policy and everything that, that rippled out from this policy that was a, a government-sanctioned Uh, way of handling the races. Now Nelson and Mandela and his new government had choices. What would their way forward be? How could they address the human rights violations of the past half century and at the same time begin uniting, rebuilding, and healing a divided nation? 
The expectations and the hopes of various people groups were pulling in what seemed like opposite directions. Some black people wanted harsh penalties for the perpetrators of criminal injustice and the abuses that were suffered under apartheid. Others feared that digging into the past would jeopardize the future of their fragile young democracy. And some wanted to simply forget the past and move towards the future as if the past could be swept underneath the carpet of the present and the future. Looking at examples of other nations who had suffered cycles of racial oppression and domination, Nelson Mandela and his government came to some conclusions. They realized that if they settled for a backlash and a reversal of power, that the violence would just continue cyclically for decades and even generations. They had to find a way forward that would bring the injustices of the past into the light and create an objective record of the effects of apartheid. What did this cost us as a people? What did this cost our nation? What did it cost every, all of us together? Without looking at their past, they could not learn from it. So they, they realized a couple things. One, they understood that victims needed to be able to give voice to the injustices that they and their loved, one, loved ones had suffered. They knew they had to give a voice. There had to be a way for people to say, here's what this cost me. Here's what this cost our family. This is what it cost us. They needed to be able to tell their stories. Secondly, they understood there needed to be restitution, or at least an attempt at restitution, wherever that was possible for those who had suffered injustice. But lastly, they also knew they needed to find a way to bring reconciliation between the oppressors and the oppressed between South Africans with different, different skin colors who had been systematically classified and separated for decades. They wanted to mend, to bridge, and to heal the deep divide in their nation. So here's their solution. This is just absolutely unheard of. This is uncharted territory for a government. Their solution was rooted in their faith and also in their confidence that it was the only way forward. They formed what, was, what would become known as the TRC. That stands for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it was led by Bishop, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who was appointed as their chairman. The TRC was an official department of the newly formed government. And its jurisdiction included, first of all, creating a legal record of the testimony of apartheid's victims. They had hearings where people were invited to come and just say, here's what happened to me. Here's what happened to our family. Here's what happened to my ancestors. Here's what it cost us, this policy of apartheid. Secondly, they, they were, this department was given jurisdiction to actually provide reparation and restitution wherever they could. That, when, that as they discovered injustices, that they could try to address them as best as they could as a government agency. And last, and here's the radical part, they were given jurisdiction to grant amnesty from prosecution. The word amnesty is a government word for forgiveness to grant amnesty from prosecution to perpetrators willing to confess their wrongs and to ask for amnesty. In other words, the government policy was a sanctioned policy of extending forgiveness, of granting forgiveness to those who would ask for forgiveness, who would confess their criminal activity, their injustices. Forgiveness was not forced upon the victim. So, so you have forgiveness happening on two levels. One, the government was saying, as, a, as a, the nation of South Africa, we choose to extend amnesty and forgiveness to this person who has asked for it. 
But secondly, in the, in the context of these hearings, they would allow individuals to also extend forgiveness to the perpetrators of violence against their family, against themselves. And so they couldn't force that. This is a government agency. They can't force an individual to forgive, nor could they force every perpetrator to ask for forgiveness. But they could foster it and say, this is, we think, the only way forward for us as a people. So they made the opportunity. Not everyone did that. But here's what the commission said. This is a quote about the work of the commission. They, we, they said, this is a necessary exercise to enable South Africans to come to terms with their past on a morally accepted basis and to advance the cause of reconciliation. It was their way of holding in tension the need for healing from the past, not ignoring it, while also paving a way for a reconciled future. Where the institution of apartheid fostered anger and hatred, it nurtured anger and hatred between the races, the institution of the TRC sought to bring healing by preaching both justice and forgiveness. I've tried to bring these two things together, justice and forgiveness. They proclaim this, one who forgives becomes a better person than the one being consumed by anger and hatred. Just hear that again. This is a government policy. One who forgives becomes a better person than the one being consumed by anger and hatred. They also said, if you can find it in yourself to forgive, then you are no longer chained to the perpetrator. If you can find it in your heart to forgive, you're no longer chained, incarcerated by your hatred, by what's been done to you. You can move on and you can even help the perpetrator to become a better person too. The chairman of the commission noted that he had actually witnessed so many incredible people who, despite experiencing atrocity and tragedy, have come to a point in their lives where they are able to forgive. For example, take the Craddock Four. The police ambushed these four black men, killed them in the most gruesome manner, and set their car on fire in Eastern Cape in 1984. When at a TRC hearing, the teenage daughter of one of these victims was asked, would you be able to forgive the people who did this to you and your family? She answered, we would like to forgive. We would just like to know who to forgive. Isn't that powerful? The work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is credited with helping to nurture and protect the fragile new democracy of South Africa. Today, South Africa is on a different trajectory than other nations where the racial divides have not been handled through forgiveness, but have just allowed to just keep lashing at each other time after time. The, uh, the policy, this policy, no future without forgiveness, forgiveness as a government-sanctioned policy was not perfect, but it was the best policy they had to end the cycles of hatred and violence and to nurture reconciliation and unity. So why was it not perfect? Well, because not all offenders asked for forgiveness, uh, because not all uh, victims chose to forgive. Uh, you can't legislate that. You, can't, you can have a policy that makes it possible, that encourages it, that says this is the best way forward, but you actually can't change people's hearts. It's, it's external legislation. Additionally, restitution, they found that restitution was the, one of the biggest problems. How do you actually recompense people for the injustice they'd suffered? And so they found that, that restitution was very difficult. But many people chose to forgive. Many people like this daughter of the Craddock Four. And that, the book that I mentioned this, this morning uh, tells many stories that are just 
incredible stories of the power of forgiveness to change a human heart and to transform these cycles of violence. I was drawn to, to, to thinking about this book this morning because we're in this series where we're talking about all the one another's of Scripture. There's instructions, especially throughout the New Testament, to the church, to the family of God about how we should live together. That having been brought into a family, what should our life together look like? And today we're looking at this command to forgive one another. Um, so here's our, here's our, I'll just put our title slide up here. Um, Here's the thing, we, we chose for our passage to actually be in this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. The reality is there's many places throughout Scripture that we could go to, many places that deal with forgiving one another. Um, it's, it's, scripture, I would say, is pretty unambiguous about this, that when there's been wrong, when, we need, when we've wronged someone, or when we've been the one who's been wronged, or oftentimes it's not a clear, you know, good guy, bad guy, oftentimes it's, it's mutual, right? We, we have ownership in it. But when there's been a relationship where there's wrong, where there's hurt, where there's distance because of, of, of injustices that have been suffered in the relationship or, or hurts or wrongs, we're, we're told over and over, forgive. Mike took us through several of those, devotion, or those passages in our, in our devotions this last week. Um, but I, what I want to say is this, is, is that it's clear from Scripture that forgiveness is the divinely sanctioned policy of the people of God when we've been wronged. And as much as forgiveness became the, divine, or the, the government-sanctioned policy in South Africa, in the kingdom of God, forgiveness is the divinely sanctioned policy. But for the true Christian, the command to forgive, it goes deeper than an external policy. And this is why I wanted to start with that, because as, as beautiful as that story is, and as amazing as it is, even the, the people today, historians looking back at it, would say, yeah, it wasn't perfect because it was an external policy. For the Christian, the, the, it is in fact a policy, but it goes deeper than that. It goes to a positional reality. It's not just a policy, it's a position, and it's rooted in our new identity. So we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. Before we get to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at the fact that Ephesians chapter 4 comes in the context of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. So Paul didn't just drop a command just out of nowhere. He didn't just write a quick you know, tweet to the Ephesian people and say, forgive each other. Right? There was a whole context that came before it. And so we're going to look at that. For example, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, this is the first few opening lines of Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians. He said, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Paul starts off by talking about what is God's posture towards humankind, and especially to followers of Jesus who have put their faith in him, who have accepted a free gift of new life through faith in Jesus. And he says, look, God's posture towards you is that he has given you an inheritance. Now, I use the NLT translation here. If you were to read this in a, a more uh, direct translation, 
that has less interpretation. It actually says that you've all been adopted as sons. And there's an emphasis for that. And, and you know, because we, we hear that differently in our day, and we, hear, uh, we, we just hear it differently than they would have, what they would have heard is this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been adopted in the family of God, then regardless of your gender, you're an heir. You inherit everything the Father gives. Inheritance in their day was always passed on through the male lineage. And so he starts by saying, before he ever gets into any sort of command, like forgive the person sitting next to you or forgive the person who's not sitting next to you anymore. He starts by saying, do you realize what God has done for you? Do you realize what you have? Your position in this universe is absolutely secure. You are, you are inheriting an eternal inheritance, eternal life, which is not just a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. You've been given that as a free gift. Because it's a free gift, no one can take it from you. You didn't earn it. It was unearned. It was undeserved. It was God's grace, his undeserved favor. So you have this this position in the universe that you are secure. And here's what it is. You've been adopted into the family of God. In writing to the followers of Jesus in, in Ephesus, Paul begins with their identity. They've been brought into a family. And as he moves on into chapter two, that's how he kind of starts things. And he continues to flesh this out. I would really encourage you to read the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's rich. You'll see that there's this progression. As he moves into chapter two, he stresses that along with that adoption, they've been given a new nature to grow into. It's a spiritual new birth. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5 and verse 10. All of us used to live that way, meaning he's talked to them about the way they used to live. And, and, and about what happens in, in their world and the way that people who weren't followers of Jesus lived in Ephesus. He said, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, by our, our DNA, you might say. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even when we were dead because of our sins, we may have been physically alive, but we were spiritually dead. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew. This is a new identity. This is a different position. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Here's the thing. Paul doesn't just write to them and say, hey, clean up your act. You know, it's time to just forgive one another. He starts with their identity, with the fact that they have a new nature, something that's, that's, that was given to them as a gift when they put their faith in Christ and were born again of the Holy Spirit, that something was placed inside them. There was a new birth that began that is still working its way to the outside, but they're to live in accordance with that new identity, not their old nature. This means that their status as sons and daughters of a heavenly father is not just a change in their legal status. Because he used the language of adoption, and we hear the language of adoption, and when a child is adopted into our families, there's a change in their legal status. Even their legal name is changed, right? But their DNA is not changed. When we, when we practice physical adoption, the, the, the physical DNA is not changed. But in spiritual adoption, there's actually a fundamental change in our identity and in our nature. He says, when, when you came into Christ, 
You didn't just get adopted in the family. Your nature was changed from the inside out. You became, you became a, a restored image bearer of God. And so as we grow and mature in the essence of our new nature, we become more like our Heavenly Father. We begin to do, to do things and respond to things the way that Jesus would if he were us. That was Dallas Willard's classic definition of discipleship. Is discipleship means that we're learning how to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. And when it comes to the issue of forgiveness, we have to look at how did Jesus treat people who oppressed him? It seems like these that Paul develops in the first half of his letter. He's adamant that they have a new identity before he ever gets to any instructions or application about how Christians should live. He, he's adamant about asserting their new identity. It's a work of grace from God. They've been given a new nature, new status, new family, new DNA. So now, now we get to chapter four. And as he moves into chapter four, he can begin fleshing out specifics of what that looks like to live in this new family. This is the application part. Therefore, in light of everything he said in chapters one through three, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Lead a life worthy of your position, your eternal position, your new identity, your new nature. Lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God. What does that look like? Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit binding yourselves together with peace. I, you know, I, I, I highlighted that verse this morning for us this morning because if there's a word that I think speaks to the church today, a word we need to hear, we don't make every effort to, to stay together. We don't make every effort to stay united. We allow petty things to divide us. Things that are in the, in the scope of eternity are not worth dividing over, worth breaking up and, and divorcing the family. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. As Paul moves into specific application, one of the repeated emphasis is on our relationship with one another. The way that we would have handled them in our unredeemed human culture, our families of origin, is no longer the way that we are to handle them. In other words, there's things that we learn from our surrounding culture, and then there's things that we've picked up from our family culture, and then there's also just kind of our own personal biases as our, our own temperaments and our own dysfunction, <laughs> right? And the ways that we would have handled them in an unredeemed culture are no longer the ways to handle them as brothers and sisters of a heavenly father. So I just want to pause there and think about damaged relationships. When you've got someone that you have strained damaged relationship with, someone you perceive has hurt you or has wronged you, someone that, you know, maybe here's the test. If you see them at Costco, you choose a different aisle, right? <laughs> Consider damaged relationship. What are the ways that we've handled those? Now, now, outside of this context where we're told to forgive one another and to be bound to one another, to, to be reconciled to one another, Outside of that, how do we handle our one another's out there? I put together a list. Maybe for, before we put up the list, is there a relationship you can think of right now? 
I'm not going to ask you to share it with anybody else. So feel free to be honest. I had to go there this week. This is the thing with, with, with teaching God's words is you have to go there first. I've, I've been in this. I've been considering my heart towards people, and God's revealed some things to me that I needed to address, that he was ready to address with me. So is there a relationship that's strained? With a brother or sister, maybe when you see them on Facebook, you cringe, or you, well, anyway. Here's some unredeemed responses. This is not a comprehensive list that we could make more. This is not a comprehensive list, but here's some unredeemed responses to damaged relationships. We can repay and avenge one another. We can keep score and hold grudges against one another. You know, keeping score, you ever do that? You, you say you forgive people, but then when it comes up in a relationship later, you remind them of it. Or, oh yeah, well, what about when you did that? Hmm? You punish them for it. We jab and hurt one another. Those can, be, those can be physical hurt, but it, oftentimes it's more verbal, little verbal jabs, little verbal digs. We can label, disparage, and vilify one another, meaning trash them to others, damaging their reputation. This is a really popular one and is actually culturally acceptable in the church. Shouldn't be, but it can happen really easily because you can say, you know what? Would you pray with me about this person? And here's what happens. It's so difficult to talk to somebody else about, about a brother or sister that you're having disagreement with without putting your stuff on them. And because they love you, they're likely to pick up your baggage and start carrying it. It happens all the time. It's so difficult to, to actually talk about someone else and not have somebody... Have you, ever, have you found this, that you can carry somebody else's baggage? I, I, I had a, a, a friend who I deeply respect deeply love, who made an offhand comment about an author of a book one time, about a specific book that was, at the time, was very popular in Christian circles. And I hadn't read the book and wasn't familiar with that author. I'd never heard him, read him, didn't know the book. But because I respected this person, I began to carry his judgments, not only about the book, but about the author of the book. To where when I went to hear him, I went to a conference and he was speaking, I was like, hmm. And then I realized I have absolutely no basis for, and I don't even know what my friend's baggage was about it. He may have had something completely different than what I took from it because we never unpacked it, but I was carrying his baggage. Be really careful about talking to someone else about something that doesn't involve them because you're putting your, your baggage on them as a burden. We label, disparage, vilify one another. We can cut off and write off one another. We can just decide, you know what? That person's dead to me. I'm, I'm done with them. In the body of Christ, no one is ever written off. We, no one is ever hopeless in the body of Christ. We can despise and disdain one another. We can just nurture that hatred. We can detach and disconnect from one another. That could be through the silent treatment. It can be through divorce, whether that's in a marriage context or just we can divorce within our spiritual family as well. We can disassociate from one another. We can cancel and shame one another. Shame is a powerful tool in our culture. If, if, there's a culture, if there's a cultural tool that is popular in the American culture today, it's shaming one another. It's not life-giving, is it? Does it produce change? Lastly, we, this is just the last time I list. Again, it's not comprehensive, but celebrating one another's harm. This is where I got caught this week. 
because I was, I was reading a paper on forgiveness. I mean, and it's actually a paper I'm going to make available to you. But it's by Tim Keller, and he talked about how one of the ways that this can creep into our hearts and we don't notice it is when we don't, we don't share our bitterness on the outside, but if this person that we feel wronged by suffers some sort of harm or something bad happens to them, we silently celebrate that. Or, or we would feel vindicated. And I recognize there's some people in my life that if, they, if, if harm came to them, I would, I would feel vindicated. And that's not right. That's a place of repentance for me. So those are some common ways of, of making people pay for the wrongs we perceive they've done. Those are, those are ways that are an unredeemed human culture, unredeemed families of origin, unredeemed human temperaments when we have damaged, wronged, or broken relationships. Paul goes on to say that unredeemed responses such as these are to become foreign to the family of God. So this is for, no, now we get into today's passage. All that, all that I just said is set up. And this is so important because Paul didn't speak these instructions. Now he's going to go into a laundry list of here's what you should do. Here's how you should live. But it didn't start with just a bunch of random commands. There's a context for it. You, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. If you're in Christ, you have an eternal inheritance that's secured. That that person that wronged you can't take from you. Whatever damage they've done to you financially, whatever damage they've done to your relationship, whatever damage they've done to your reputation, that they can't really hurt you because you are eternally secure in the love of your creator. And you're a new creation yourself, formed in the image of God. So how will you respond to that? Here's what he says, Ephesians 4, 17. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live, so this, don't hear this, as just Paul's words. He's, he's, he's emulating what Jesus has said throughout the Gospels and the posture of God towards all of creation. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do. Let's just stop there. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. It, you know, in South Africa, they had uh, white people and non-white. The minority was the white people. The majority was everybody else. First century, you know, Mediterranean world, the classification from, from this false perspective was Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles was a pretty broad group. And the people in Ephesus, it's a predominantly Gentile culture. The people he's writing to, they, by birth, they were Gentiles. And Paul writes and says, you can't live like the Gentiles live anymore. It'd be like writing to us and saying, okay, so first of all, you guys can't live like the Americans do. As if your identity is so fundamentally changed by your relationship to Jesus that you're no longer your, your primary identity is no longer your nationality. It's no longer an ethnic designation or a, or a, a racial designation. So you're the family of Jesus. And so he says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles live, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they've closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure. And they eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't the way you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature. Throw off your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. 
Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. What follows in the rest, of the, the first half of the book is building up to this new identity. It's, it's unpacking and really trying to ground and root the church in their new identity. The rest of it's applying it. And, and, it, and it's this ongoing contrast of who you once were and who you now are and that you're supposed to grow into. And so he's, he's, now he's just fleshing out this contrast. Put on your new nature, created to be like God. What follows is then several examples of new ways to live that are true to God's nature and image. Ephesians 4.25. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all members of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. He doesn't say don't be angry. He said handle your anger in a way that reflects God's image. God is at times angry. There's things to be angry about. But how we steward that anger is very important. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say or type, just added that in, <laughs> let everything you say or type be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear or read them. Lastly, our final passage. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Okay? You, you, there's something you're moving towards that is a guarantee. He said the, the Holy Spirit that you were given at your new birth is a seal that God is going to finish what he's begun. You've been sealed. You have a down payment that he's going to finish everything that he's begun. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. So get rid of all bitterness. Here's, what's, here's our key passage. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another forgiving one another, just as God through Christ forgave you. Paul's approach to this whole topic of forgiveness is not external legislation, it's internal transformation. Yes, the, 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 the sanctioned policy in the kingdom of God is forgiveness, but it goes much deeper than an external policy. It's an internal posture, position, identity. It's not, about, it's not about legislation, it's about transformation. Which brings us to two, external, or two anchoring truths to guide and empower our forgiveness of one another. Forgiveness, this side of eternity, will be an ongoing practice. Both asking for forgiveness and extending forgiveness. We, we never outgrow this. Because we're people. And we're supposed to grow in it. So two anchoring truths to guide and empower. First of all, it is the nature of our Heavenly Father to forgive. To choose forgiveness is to carry and reflect his image in our world. So from a different writing of Paul's in Colossians, Paul wrote, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you're his dear children. So consider Jesus. Jesus is the, we're told in scripture, he's the exact image of the invisible God. John tells us that, that, that no one has ever seen the invisible God, but Jesus, who, who, who knows him best, 
has made him known. And we see that Jesus' posture towards those who hurt him is a posture of forgiveness. We see him on the cross. To, to a people who are not, and here's, this is so key, they're not asking forgiveness. They're in, in the process of destroying his life. And as he's being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them. This is the nature of our God. And for us to, to tolerate unforgiveness in our hearts towards other people is to distort the image of God. You cannot call yourself a Christian and harbor bitterness without any sort of intent to, to grow beyond that, to let go of it. To harbor unforgiveness in your heart or behavior is a denial of your identity as a child of God. And it's a distortion of his image to others. The primary call of, of mankind was to carry God's image in this world. And when, and when we're born again, that image gets restored, restoried. And so for us to then carry his image faithfully, when, when, you know, when, when we, we end most Sundays by saying, okay, go make the invisible God visible. Well, that's kind of abstract, right? What does that look like? It looks like forgiving people who don't deserve it. It may even look like forgiving people who haven't asked for it. It's a posture of the heart. It's a posture of the mouth. So number one, it is the nature of our Heavenly Father to forgive. To choose forgiveness is to carry and to reflect his image faithfully in our world. Secondly, the last anchoring point, anchoring into God's forgiveness of ourselves prepares our hearts to forgive one another. So here's an example, again, in Colossians. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Our text today, the way it said it was, just as God has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. I've been struck this week as I look through all the, the passages about forgiveness, how often our ability to forgive others is directly connected to how well we've understood that God has forgiven us and that we're allowing that to permeate and penetrate our hearts. And if you're not able to forgive someone else, when I'm not able to forgive the person who's wronged me, it's because the lack is not just in my ability to forgive them. It's in my understanding of what God has forgiven me. And so, so Jesus taught his disciples, and, in, and whenever Jesus dealt with the issue of forgiveness and, and people who had judgmental hearts, he always pointed them to how they needed God's forgiveness. And if they received that, it would permeate their relationships. So what did Jesus do? Jesus' disciples said, would you teach us how to pray? Gave him a prayer that we often call the Lord's Prayer. We studied through it a couple years ago. We said, it's really the disciples' prayer. It's the one that they asked him to say, would you teach us? And he gave it to him. And in it, there's this line. And again, I want to suggest to you, as we, as we saw when we went through that prayer, that's designed to be prayed every day. It's not just a prayer for special occasions or solemn occasions. Our Father who art in heaven. That's why we rewrote it to be in our language. But one of the lines in it is, give us this day our daily bread, which means it is a prayer to be prayed every day. Forgive us our trespasses as we then forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus set up this practice for his disciples to do a daily inventory of their need for God's forgiveness from a heavenly father. And then in that, he said, in that you'll be able to forgive other people. If you're struggling with forgiveness, I don't want you to just white knuckle it and say, okay, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better at this forgiveness thing. 
It's actually, oh God, would you remind me of what you've forgiven me for? Remind me of my need for your forgiveness. Because to the degree that we accept God's forgiveness for us, we'll have an abundance of forgiveness to give to others. These are our two anchoring truths. Um, I wrote it this way. It's cultivating this and tending the soil of the heart that creates an environment in which authentic forgiveness can, for, can grow and be practiced. This means that forgiveness is a choice before it's a feeling. Let me say it again. Forgiveness is a choice before it's a feeling. It's a choice that's rooted in those two truths. The consensus of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is that each of us is accountable for our part in any wrong relationship. Our tendency is to always be looking at the other person or the other people group that, that, that we're in conflict or in tension with. And Jesus, whether, whether he's talking in Matthew 5 about what to do if you need to ask forgiveness or Matthew 18 where he says you need to extend forgiveness, whether, no matter which side of the equation you find yourself on, Jesus says, you're accountable for your part, not theirs. It's so easy to be focused on what they should be doing, which keeps us from looking at what our part is. I left a lot on the table today. Uh, this has been a, a topic that I've just realized it's, it's, been, re- it's been relevant for me personally, and, it's, and I believe it's relevant for us and in our cultural moment. Um, and so what I want to do is, we, we are, we're not going to, we could actually do a whole series, I think, on this. But what I want to do is I want to give you the same paper that I, wrote this, I read this week that I found so very helpful. It's written by Tim Keller. Uh, if you're not familiar with Tim Keller, he's a, a now-retired pastor who continues to invest into leaders, but he's often been called like the, the pastor of America's pastors. He's, um, for lack of a better word, he's a Jedi. So um, here's a link. Uh, if you type, if you go to website vineyardboys.org slash forgive, you can find that paper, or you can just, again, you can point your camera at that QR code, and it'll pull up the link directly. But it's a, it's a fantastic paper that is comprehensive. Um, he deals with a lot of the things that, the objections that might keep us from being able to put this into practice. Um, he talks about things like, well, what if the other person hasn't acknowledged they're wrong? He talks about how often do we need to confront? In other words, do we confront lovingly every single time that someone slights us? Boy, that's exhausting. Have you ever been around somebody that, that is easily offended and just has to confront you on everything? It's exhausting. Don't do it. But he deals with it. He talks about whether or not saying I forgive you also means I trust you. And no, it doesn't. Saying I forgive you does not mean I trust you. He deals with what if someone won't extend forgiveness that you ask for it and they won't extend it. He deals with uh, what if our part is not the primary part? Maybe it's, we're, we're offended on behalf of somebody else, maybe somebody that's a, a close family member. But, but it's terribly practical. So if your heart is convicted this morning, if maybe as we talked about a relationship where you're experiencing unforgiveness or resentment or bitterness, distance, maybe the relationship has become cold and you know that God wants to become warm, I'd encourage you to download this, pa- this, this passage and just hold on to it. Print it out. I'm going to hold on to mine. Mine's, you can see mine's pretty marked up because it was really helpful. So there you go. So we left a lot on the table, but as we close today, we're going to come to the communion table because this is over and over throughout Scripture, the, the command of forgiveness is tied to our 
capacity and our awareness that we've received forgiveness, our, our ability to ask God for forgiveness. And so if you're here on campus, I encourage you to, um, to gra- get, grab the elements of communion. If you don't have it, you need it, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring it by. And this morning, what I want to lean into in communion is such a, it's such a rich practice with so many layers. But in the context of this morning, as we're talking about forgive one another, we're just going to lean into that aspect. If a hand over here, if we could have an usher bring communion. Thanks, Tim. I just want to lean into this aspect of forgiveness. What we hold in our hands, if you're joining online, hopefully you're able to find something that can be a proximity for communion. Jesus' body was broken in order to release forgiveness, in order to take the punishment that we deserve. You know, one of the problems with the, uh, the, the shortcomings of the policy in South Africa is that they couldn't really bring restitution. They couldn't really satisfy the wrong that had been done. Jesus, in his posture of offering up his life, he took the, the death that we deserved. He took our punishment upon himself. His body was broken in order to, to take the the death that we should have died. But he didn't stay. He didn't stay in the tomb. He was risen to new life. And that new life is the the source of, of resurrection life, of this new identity. That we can even now, on this side of eternity, we can begin to experience new life, new creation. So as we receive this, it's an act of faith but we believe that there is a, an empowering grace that is actually released in our lives. When we receive what Jesus did for us in faith, there's an empowerment, a transformation, a grace that is released to help us to navigate these relationships differently. To soften hearts of stone, to empower forgiveness. As you hold that in your hand, I'm just going to invite you to say your own prayer. Say your own prayer this morning as you consider your own need for forgiveness and asking God for the ability to forgive others. Lord Jesus, as we receive in obedience and in faith the provision that you've made for us, the provision by which we've been adopted into your family and given new birth, new life, 
We recognize that came at a great cost to you. Your broken body, your blood that was poured out. And so Lord, it's not a small thing that we can call ourselves followers of Jesus. That you won us at a great price. So having done that, having won us, having redeemed us, would you take hold of us today to be a people who are zealous to forgive, who are quick to ask forgiveness, who are quick to extend forgiveness, that we would be a community of grace who never gives up on one another, who never writes one another off, We receive your, your forgiveness for us today. When you're ready, you can receive the bread and the cup. we close today, we do have some words for prayer that our prayer team sensed. Um, a couple of specific things they shared. Just sense God wanting to address this morning. We're going to put those words up. Additionally, if, there's, if those are meaningful to you, you know who you are. And we'd love to pray with you. If you're online, you can send an email to prayer at vineyardboys.org, or you can, uh, depending on which platform you're on, there may be a button you can click to ask for prayer. But if you'd like prayer this morning, I invite you to, to just come uh, up front as we close this morning. Uh, front section up here is, is uh, just a place to come and allow a brother or sister to pray with you. And, um, and so it could be one of these things that are on the screen. It could be something else that you're just uh, recognizing you need prayer for this morning. Uh, maybe there's an issue of forgiveness that you just like somebody to pray with you, that you would know what it looks like to walk in obedience to to God's command that we would forgive one another. Um, that's the case. We're glad to pray with you. Apart from that, uh, go out and make the invisible God visible and uh, forgive one another. Amen. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.